my pleasure to introduce Daniel Weidlinger uh, to you this evening. Um, I met Daniel in, I believe, in the airport um, around an American Academy of Religions conference. Uh, I think going or coming, I think it was good. on our way back. We wound up on the same airplane because we're coming back from one of those um, uh, united uh, cities back uh, on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. And um, fell to talking, and I, I was amazed and delighted to learn who he was because I have been reading his, his book, um, Spreading the Dhamma, Writing Morality and Textual Transmission on Buddhist Northern Thailand in relationship to another project of mine that I've been working on myself. Uh, and it's, I think, for Buddhist studies, only very, very recently, and Daniel is kind of at the, the leading edge of that, only very recently that an awareness of the oral background uh, of Buddhism uh, has really come to play. Uh, the field has been for about a century and a half been dominated by textual studies, uh, continues to be dominated by textual studies, the critical uh, editing of texts, the translation of texts, issues about translation, um, perhaps the most exciting. This, this tells you how what our field is like. One of the really exciting things is when new texts are found, whoo, oh boy, uh, in some desert cave somewhere uh, or underneath a, a stupa somewhere. Uh, we all get excited about this. And um, as a consequence, the, the kind of work that I first uh, became aware of has not been given a lot of attention. Um, that is, what about that transition from when Buddhism was an oral tradition to when it became a written tradition? Uh, what kinds of changes occurred? Because it's, technology is never value neutral. Uh, it's never just a simple process. The introduction of a new technology, one that we take for granted, like writing, uh, will have really fundamental uh, transformative effects. And that's the kind of thing that uh, Daniel has written about. He is now a professor in the Religious Studies Department at California State University, Chico, um, which I was, the other thing I was delighted to learn was that he was so close by, uh, and that we would be able to invite him here to be a guest speaker. Uh, he did his work at Chicago, uh, school there, and I just checked, and indeed we have a teacher in common, um, somebody who was at the Graduate Theological Union a number of years ago, who I studied under her uh, a couple of years, Wendy Doniger and who then went on to become world famous when she got to Chicago. Um, she was just kind of locally famous uh, when she was here at the GT. She went to Chicago and um, actually took over one of the most important positions uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, so we have a, uh, a lineal, uh, we share a lineage uh, of, of training. So without further babbling, I would like to introduce uh, Professor Redmond. introduction and thank you for coming out everybody it's a pleasure to be here I uh, just one one story because I see uh, some some people here who were up at Chico uh, last week and um, you had mentioned that one of the exciting things is when a new text is discovered in you know some cave somewhere well last year so I teach at Chico, uh, Chico State University it's about three hours northeast of here and um, it's a smaller town maybe about 80,000 people live there and we put, we had a theme about books and literacy last year. So that means that throughout the university, we tried to put on programs that in some way talked about books and literacy. And as part of it, I gave a talk on books and literacy in the Buddhist world. And um, after the talk, somebody came up to me, uh, just from the audience, you know, a local person in Shigo. And they said, um, I've got something that, you know, in my basement, that my husband, uh, you know, left and he never told me what it was. He had died some years ago. And maybe you can help me. So the next day she came into my office with a 150-year-old Burmese palm leaf manuscript that was in her basement and she had had no idea what it was, right? Like, didn't know if it was from Asia, from uh, South America, you know, had no idea. It turned out to be about 150 years old, an obscure Abhidharma text, uh, maybe about... Uh, it was quite big, probably about 150 leaves long, and her husband had been 
in the Vietnam War when he was in South Asia, he befriended some people and somehow they gave him this and he was just wrapped in newspapers. So, it was, so we actually put it on display at the university. I said, would you mind if we, because it's book year, you know, year of literacy, and we, have a, we had a display of a, a, 15th, sorry, a 16th century Bible and we had some other things. So I said, could we put it on display and she let us. And, People are very interested to see an actual palm leaf manuscript. So it's an interesting story. You never know where these things can be found. And um, as Dr. Payne said, it's very interesting to focus on the oral uh, aspects of Buddhism. So we have to remember that when Buddhism started, there was no writing. And it's very difficult to get this into our heads, living in a literate world like we do, right? So that means that, right, it's, obviously the Buddha was not able to read or write, but he didn't know that there was such a thing as writing, right? And uh, I mean, it really is a very interesting idea. Um, and of course, because of that, uh, memorization has always been greatly honored in the Indian world in general, amongst uh, the Vedic and Hindu tradition, as well as the Buddhist tradition. And interestingly enough, if you look at the Guinness Book of World Records, you will actually find that the world record for human memory, now, it's not in the most recent few years, but five years ago and earlier, this was the reigning record. It says, Badanta Vichitsara recited 16,000 pages of Buddhist canonical texts in Rangoon, Burma, during May, 1974. So, although in the early period of Buddhism, of course, all of the texts were memorized, and as uh, most of you probably know, uh, the texts start with the phrase, Eva me sutam, right? Thus have I heard, because they are a record of what people heard uh, the Buddha saying, and then they pass it on down orally. So, even still today, this tradition is very much alive and uh, memorizing large amounts of text is a very important part of the life of many monks. Um, and as you can see, uh, 16,000 pages is quite, quite a feat that he memorized this thing. Now, um, the, but because there was no writing, obviously the question is, well, what role should writing have in Theravada Buddhism or Buddhism in general, right? What role did it have? So, of course, let me just be clear, because there have been discussions about this. As some scholars, one of the great scholars of literacy in general is uh, Jack Goody. Some of you might have heard of him. He wrote a number of works in the 70s. Um, and he comes out of the tradition of media scholars, uh, such as Marshall McLuhan and Walter Hong, who look at the interface between writing and orality. And basically, he believes that it was impossible that there was not writing in ancient India. Because, of course, the complexity of the works, such as, you know, Panini's grammar of Sanskrit, it's almost impossible for a modern person to conceive how these incredibly complex works could have been not just transmitted orally, but even just composed orally, right? So remember, that means they didn't have notes to take. Any idea they had had to be memorized, right? Any business transaction in ancient India had to be memorized, right? So if you ordered a certain amount of rice and you know the person brought that to remember how much, I mean obviously there were some ways of doing counting, but um, you know pretty much everything had to be memorized. So it is difficult for us to conceive of that, and of course the scholar Jack Goody uh, believed that in fact there was writing in ancient India because he couldn't conceive of how there wasn't. But there's been a lot of study about this. Uh, in particular, there's German scholars, Oskar von Neuber and Harry Falk, who've done a lot of research into whether there really was writing um, in ancient India. And it seems pretty clear that the Ashokan pillars that you're probably all familiar with, right, somewhere around <coughs> 250 BCE, really are pretty much the, the beginnings of writing in that world. Right? So there might have been writing for a few decades before this. But uh, of course, there's uh, rock inscriptions as well as pillar inscriptions. And they do seem to be the earliest evidence of writing in the ancient Indian world. There is maybe one or two references to this word that is used to refer to writing in Sanskrit. Lik, that's the root, right? Uh, Likati, he writes. Um, but, it, sorry, one or two references in the Pali Canon. 
but it seems that those really just refer to scratching something, like not writing letters, but just maybe scratching some sort of uh, image into something. So um, having said that then, um, we, uh, the Buddhist texts were transmitted orally from the earliest period, either the Buddha or whoever exactly it was that developed the early texts. And they were passed on orally until they were presumably written down in Sri Lanka for the first time, uh, probably around 50 BCE, something like that. So that means that if we use traditional uh, dates, we're looking at a good 400 years, right, in which the teachings of the Buddha were passed on orally. And the relevant section of the Mahavamsa, the great chronicle of Sri Lanka, says the text of the three Pitakas and the Atakata um, thereon did the most wise bhikkhus hand down in former times orally. But since they saw that the people were falling away from religion, the bhikkhus came together, and in order that the true doctrine might endure, they wrote them down in books. So uh, there is an interesting aside here that they did notice that maybe memorization wasn't the strongest technique, that they felt that maybe writing would be um, a better way to preserve it. Of course, there was a lot of debate about this, right? Although in many Western cultures, we have a great honor uh, for writing and veneration of it, right? So, uh, of course, coming out of the Judaic tradition, the people of the book, you know, thus it is written. But of course, in India, the powerful phrase is thus it is said, right? So it's always the oral, and of course, we don't really have time in this particular talk to get into all the various connotations of orality and uh, sound that one has in the Vedic tradition, the power of mantras, right? All of that, of course, is connected to the power of the spoken word uh, rather than the written word. But nevertheless, it does seem that some monks believe that, in fact, maybe we should try writing down these texts, and they did. And just as an aside, uh, some of you who might be familiar with Western culture, of course, the ancient Greeks, the Homeric epics, were also memorized, and they were written down earlier. Uh, than uh, several hundred years earlier than the Buddhist text. But nevertheless, when they were written down, there was also great debate, and even Plato uh, talks about this, that people felt that if you write something down, then you don't really know it that well, right? Because to know something means it's in your head, right? To write it down, you can write it down that leaves the, the paper. It, it doesn't become part of you, right, in the same way that, um, that memorizing it does. And of course, we should remember even that the extremely important Buddhist practice uh, that we translate to English as mindfulness, right, sati. The word means remembering, right? So the concept of memory is integral to Buddhism as well as, as Hinduism. Now, um, so the, the texts were written down according to the Mahavamsa, and again, there's been a lot of study about this. There's no need to get into the details, but most scholars believe that that's more or less accurate. So it seems likely, based on other evidence, that they really were written down some points around the middle of the first century BCE. Now, of course, the first evidence, physical evidence, of um, Buddhist texts are these early uh, birch bark manuscripts from what is now Pakistan, what used to be Gantara, right? And this is probably about third century, one of the oldest ones, are written on birch bark. So once the texts were written down, the two main media that were used were, in the north of India, they used birch bark, right, called birch, obviously a cognate word with our word birch in Sanskrit. And in the southern parts, in Sri Lanka and other southern places, they used palm leaves. And uh, the palm leaves don't last nearly as well as the birch bark, so there's no super ancient palm leaf manuscripts left. There are a few examples of uh, birch bark, ancient birch bark manuscripts uh, extant. So the, since I study Theravada Buddhism mainly, I will focus, well, uh, we'll focus actually both on Mahayana and Theravada. So um, I wanted to mention a little bit about the palm leaves that were used to write the, uh, the southern Buddhist texts. So they come from a tree called the Talipat uh, palm, and this grows fairly widely around Southeast Asia. And of course, the thing about a palm leaf, here's a, a palm tree, and then of course, a close-up of the leaves, right? So the leaves are very long and very thin. So 
the texts end up uh, for somebody who's used to reading Western-style texts. It takes a bit of getting used to, right? Because instead of a page that's more square, there's many lines. You have a leaf that's a meter long with four lines, right? Very long lines on it. And another interesting thing is that they are not, you don't write on the palm leaves. Many people aren't aware of this. You actually carve into them, which has the advantage of uh, leaving a fairly durable uh, impression on the leaf of the letters. And then what they do is they take soot and wipe the soot onto the leaf and then clean it off. So the soot stays in the, in the holes, in the lines that have been incised by these stylus. So that after 200 years, instead of the ink fading, as would happen with you know, many Western books, simply the soot comes out and then you just re-soot it and you can read it like new again. So it's a very uh, clever way of doing it. So here's an example of an old stylus uh, that would be used to carve into these leaves. Um, and here's a, what a palm leaf manuscript might look like. So I showed you a birch bark manuscript, and here's a palm leaf manuscript. So you can see the palm leaves, and then there's a few lines written through them like that. So that's how these manuscripts tend to look. However, it's very important to remember that once writing was used to transmit the Buddhist texts, it doesn't mean that, oh, suddenly from you know, 50 BC, everything was written, right? Writing was basically viewed as a way of storing texts for safekeeping, rather than you know, engaging with them every day in a written mode, right? So from then, and again, even still today, the main way that a lot of these texts are dealt with is through memorization and through oral transmission. And indeed, uh, this is just an example of an older library from uh, Thailand. And you can see here, these are the boxes that the manuscripts are kept in. Okay? Now, if you write the manuscripts out and you put them in this box here, yeah, so this one weighs a few hundred pounds, you've got to get four people you know, to carry it and then open up the lid. It's, it's, it's called a library, but it's not you know, organized in the way that any modern librarian would be terribly happy with. right? Um, it's not meant for quick uh, usage of the text, but just for storing them away in case somebody forgets one. You could then go back and maybe double check it that way. And here's just a little photograph that I took, you know, looking inside the box. So there's maybe 10 manuscripts that are wrapped in cloth here and just kept inside, and then the lid is put on, then another box is put on. And that, so, um, no, it's not the easiest way. So it is important to remember that they were used, uh, they were used uh, not that frequently. Anyway, so having said all of this, okay, so having said all of this, the question then arises in terms of the actual ideological role of the written word in the religion, right? What, what was it? Because since it's not mentioned in the Pali Canon, right, we then have, I mean, a very important feature of the religion, these written texts, and it's unclear exactly what role they, sh they should play or they ought to play. And indeed, um, the, the canon doesn't really, you know, as I said, doesn't mention writing at all. And they do mention, uh, when they talk about learned people, for example, in the Tipitaka, the Pali canon, the word bahu suto is used a lot, right? Bahu meaning a lot, and suto is Pali for, you know, shruta, uh, having heard. So somebody who has heard a lot, right? So that means a learned person. Again, emphasizing that to know stuff isn't someone well, you know, we say, oh, he's very well read in our society. But of course, in ancient India, they would say, oh, he's well heard. You know, he's heard a lot of stuff, right? Um, anyway, um, so, you know, the, these written texts just are outside of the Tipitaka. It doesn't have one thing, anything to say about them one way or the other. So what should the place of manuscripts be in the devotional life of the faithful? Right? What role should we venerate them? Should we, uh, what should we do with them? Well, of course, when you ask what cultic role, what ritual role a physical text you know, ought to play in, in Buddhism, you run up against the problem that, of course, it's unclear from the core canonical text, right, the, uh, the Tipitaka text, exactly what role ritual should play regarding anything in the religion, right? There's not that much discussion of uh, ritual veneration in the Pali text. 
And in, of course, as many of you know, the main discussions about what we would call like occultic features of the religion focus on the worship of stupas, right? And even that is not, although it's extremely common in the later, the post-canonical literature, right? The various chronicles and the commentarial works. In the canonical texts, it is, even the worship of stupas is not that much discussed. But, you know, the locus classicus of uh, worship is found in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, right? Just after the Buddha dies. And he says, Ananda, uh, what is done with the body of a universal monarch, right, at Shakavatim, should also be done with the body of the Tathagata. At a crossroads, a stupa should be raised for the Tathagata. And whosoever shall bring to that place garlands or incense or sandal paste, or pay reverence, and whose mind becomes calm there, it will be to his well-being and happiness for a long time, right? And that paragraph is kind of the main one that is used to help outline for later Buddhist generations, you know, how to venerate. Okay, so we know we should bring flowers and uh, apply sandal paste and stuff like that to these stupas. Now, interestingly, um, once writing uh, became used and they were writing things, it was uh, no attempt to formally include written text in the cultic scheme of Theravada Buddhism was made. Even in the commentaries, in the, the great commentaries of Buddha Gosa in the 5th century, by his time, you know, writing it finally at that point. So it, you know, it was introduced 50 BC, and it took several hundred years for it really to be used other than as a curiosity, right? Just like the internet. Well, that took two years, I guess, from its introduction until everybody used it. But still, there were two years when it was around and everybody wasn't using it, right? Uh, so writing maybe two or three hundred years, but nevertheless, by Gudugos' time, it was being used, and he mentions the word writing in his uh, and reading and stuff like that in the uh, commentaries. However, interestingly enough, he didn't say, um, as far as I know, what role it should play in the religion and what role written text should play, how should you treat them, right? I mean, these are very important issues, right? If you look at Judaism or Islam, you know, there's a lot of discussion from the earliest period. How do you treat the Torah scrolls, right? Uh, how do you treat the Quran? I mean, even this is in the news, right? So not anymore, thank God, but uh, it was in the news several years ago that you know, the Quran wasn't treated properly by the U.S. Army when they had uh, detainees. I mean, these are you know, headline-making issues, uh, but it's not discussed in the, um, even in the commentaries. However, finally, in the sub-commentary to the Vinaya, so this is about 10th century, finally, so that's a thousand years after writing was first used, there is a mention of uh, writing. And it says, in the Vinaya Tika, it says that there are three types of stupa, or chetia is the word they use there, but it's basically the same thing. There's a pariboga chetia, a datu chetia, and a dhamma chetia. And the first type, they say, uh, houses articles used by the Buddha. Okay, so things used by him. Maybe a part of his bowl or something would be housed there. Then there's the Datu Chetia, right? That's the Datu, the relics of the Buddha, very common kind. But then they say, what is a Dhamma Chetia? A Dhamma Chetia is um, a, a, a reliquary mound that has been built around some excerpt from the text, such as the Paticca Sanupada, you know, the 12 Nidanas of that, or something that has been written out and placed inside it. So that's, you know, clear mentioned that indeed the written word is sacred and we can honor it in a similar way to which we would honor a stupa over a relic of the Buddha. If you take an important uh, textual passage and write it down and put it inside a stupa, it's okay, or actually it's enjoined upon you to worship that as well. So that's the first uh, that I have been able to find. Uh, that's the first uh, reference to that. Uh, that's about uh, 10th century, 10th century. Now, um, so, so that's uh, so much for the um, canonical and commentarial texts. The next place that it's really interesting to turn to in order to find some idea about well, how is writing used, how ought it to be used, is of course the great uh, chronicles of Southeast Asia. And uh, as many of you know, uh, unlike a lot of other uh, South Asian um, traditions, Buddhism has a fairly good uh, 
historical historiography tradition, right, where monks from various areas wrote fairly detailed chronicles, usually starting off mythically and then moving into the early part of Buddhism, discussing the various councils, and then, of course, leading up to how Buddhism came to that region. So from uh, Sri Lanka, we have the Mahavamsa, and it's also divided into separate parts. It was continued. It was probably first written around the 5th century, and then was continued every few hundred years, even into the uh, 18th century. So that's from Sri Lanka. Then from Thailand, you have the Jinakalamali uh, Pakarnam. That's another chronicle, very well done. You know, fairly accurate when you look at inscriptions and try to triangulate. You see that it's, you know, pretty good history. Uh, of course, from Burma, there's the Sasanavamsa. And there's also many um, vernacular chronicles as well that have similar contents but add things from all these areas. So there's a lot of interesting historical uh, data that we can find in these. Uh, in these. Now, for today, obviously for time reasons, I'm going to focus on Sri Lanka and the Mahabamsa. And then if we have uh, if we have time after that, I'll mention a little bit about Northern Thailand as well. So we'll focus on that. But certainly during the question period, feel free to ask about other regions if you want to. Um, so, uh, unlike the Pali canonical material, um, accounts of writing in a religious context are actually quite common in the Mahabamsa. So it really is a good source to use to learn about how writing was used in uh, in the period. Now, the most striking episode of the worship of a book of Buddhist texts occurs in the Mahabamsa during the reign of a king called Kasapa V. And he was, again, around the 10th century, so contemporary with the sub-commentary that I had mentioned. And uh, now look at this. I mean, this is a pretty clear uh, instance, right? So the king of Lanka had the Abhidhamma recited. Having the Abhidhamma written on gold tablets and then having adorned the Dhammasangani book with various jewels, bringing it to the middle of the city and having it positioned in the upper chamber. He provided it with a retinue, giving the position of Sakasena to his own son. He commissioned him to care for the books of the Dhamma. Right? So they actually wrote it on gold. He had great care for it. And then uh, later on, the uh, Mahabamsa continues to say that, in fact, uh, they were brought out annually, these books, for a great festival, and they would have an elephant and put a velvet pillow on top and then put the manuscripts on top, and they would walk the elephant through town. So obviously, you know, this is clear evidence of the veneration of the written word, right, as maybe a stand-in for the Buddha, right, as part of the Dharmakaya, uh, as we might see with a Buddha image or something like that. Um, let's see here. All right, and also I do want to point out that uh, the word puja is specifically used in the Pali here, right? So when we see words translated here as worship, or I don't know if the word worship is here, but it's certainly later on in the passage, and it is puja. So that is the standard word used to uh, talk about worshiping something, rather than just, you know, thinking it's great, right? Uh, puja is actually a worship of it. Um, now, interestingly enough, this event is also mentioned in a contemporary inscription from the Anuradhapura region, made at the behest of King Kasapa. And, um, you know, so that means that it really was a significant, and it wasn't just um, something that the monks who wrote the Mahavamsa, you know, dreamed up. Well, we, wouldn't it be great if the king honored the written word like this? So let's write a section in which he did this. Well, it's clearly, you know, there's official inscriptions saying that this happened as well. So, uh, you know, as a good critical historian, I try to look at a number of different things to triangulate, not just necessarily uh, look at one source. Um, and I should also point out that this golden Abhidhamma is not the only such artifact that's mentioned in the Mahabamsa. There's another instance uh, a few hundred years later um, where mention is made of a golden book. So again, there's this continued reverence starting from the 10th century on in Sri Lanka. The Mahabamsa has an unusually lengthy record of manuscript-making efforts over the centuries, uh, and therefore this attests to the importance of the manuscripts in Sri Lanka. 
Um, again, I do want to point out that even though it seems that from the 10th century on, manuscripts were certainly being made in probably fairly large numbers, and they were being worshipped in some way, uh, it still is important to remember that even then, the way that most actual people in Sri Lanka came to know the teachings of the Buddha wasn't by you know, going home and after dinner sort of curling up with a manuscript and reading it, right? It was through hearing people preach you know, orally the teachings, right? So reading was still not uh, commonly done, but nevertheless, uh, presumably more so than, than before. Now, um, a very interesting passage that I came across, presumably from the 13th century, is uh, this one from King Bhuvaneka Babu, and uh, it says as follows. So it's the 13th century. He gave the learned scribes of the Dhamma books a lot of money, and having all three Pitakas copied by them, he placed them in monasteries all over Lanka. In this way, the king caused the efflorescence of the Dhamma. Now that's actually a big deal, because um, in my studies, I've looked at a lot of the chronicles and their references to writing. And pretty much, um, and also their references to you know, Dhamma being strengthened here or there. As uh, Dr. Payne mentioned, my book is called Spreading the Dhamma. So it's all about how the teachings came from one place to another. And almost always, right, the strengthening of the Dhamma or the bringing of the religion, they usually use the term sasana, right, for religion or it means they're the teachings. Any phrase like that is associated usually with monks, right, physical people going from one area to another to strengthen the religion, right? This is pretty much the only uh, instance I found where the bringing of physical books uh, is regarded as strengthening the religion. Maybe not the only instance, but one of the few. So that's kind of a lot rarer. Um, so I, I wanted to bring that to your attention. Um, and of course, another thing that obviously no suggests a great reverence for books and it's unclear how much it tells us about how reading was actually done or how the books were used but nevertheless building libraries so obviously you would expect to uh, you know in, the, in these chronicles all of the chronicles that I've mentioned the Jinnakalamari and the Mahabamsa the Chumabamsa is just the latter part of the Mahabamsa okay so it's the same text they talk at great length about building various monasteries, right? So how large was the Vihara? How large was the Uposata Hall? How many Kutis were built? You know, these are fairly detailed lists. So you would expect it to mention libraries if they were actually building libraries or some sort of place to put these texts. And indeed, the Mahabamsa chronicles, I counted about um, 130 libraries mentioned as having been built throughout the Mahabamsa. So that's a lot of libraries obviously indicating that these were regarded as important buildings, and um, uh, many of them were being built, so this was strengthening the religion. So, in sum, we can tell from the Mahavamsa that from the 10th century on, uh, writing was regarded as both uh, practically important, as well as ritually important. Written books were honored, libraries were built. It was even believed that, you know, actually reading the text was an important way to strengthen Buddhism, right, uh, from this. So, you know, a, a pretty deep engagement with writing and the written word in Sri Lanka during this period. So, the question is, there's a gap of a thousand years, right, between the writing down of um, the Tipitaka and then this kind of uh, efflorescence of literate culture. And why, like, what might have happened in those 10 centuries? That is a question that I was uh, wondering about. And basically, um, my sense is that Mahayana Buddhism might have something to do with this. Why suddenly in this period, right, you've got, because don't forget, as you asked me, the sub-commentary was from the 10th century, right? The golden copy was from the 10th century. You know, it kind of all started around the same period. So why would it have started then? Well, I think that Mahayana Buddhism might have had a strong influence here because it turns out that Mahayana Buddhism was actually quite popular in Sri Lanka during this period. And this is in many ways little known about, of course, because Sri Lanka is the heart of the Theravada 
Orthodox Theravada Buddhist world, right? But there were a few centuries, 9th, 10th, uh, and part of the 11th, in which Mahayana Buddhism was really a, a, a possible rival with Theravada Buddhism. But then one of the kings, um, you know, purged the uh, Buddhist community. It doesn't mean he went around killing Mahayana Buddhists, but it just means that he, you know, really withdrew a lot of institutional support. He gathered all the monks together in councils, and they said, okay, you know, these texts are uh, okay, these texts are not, right? Um, so that ended Mahayana pretty much from that point on in Sri Lanka. But there were a few hundred years there in which Mahayana was uh, popular in Sri Lanka. So now my task is, I've got a few more minutes, right? Okay. So uh, now my task is, first of all, to show that the writing has always been important in, Theravada, in Mahayana Buddhism. And then I'll briefly show that, just show that Mahayana was indeed popular in Sri Lanka at exactly this period. So um, the written word has always been very important in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, some of you, there's a very famous article in uh, Buddhist studies written by Richard Gombrich called How the Mahayana Began. And basically he argues that in fact writing helped Mahayana get started simply because uh, when everything was memorized, right, it was a big task. And it's not like one, I mean, okay, in the Guinness Book of World Records, one guy memorized everything. But in general, you know, the monks were divided into groups. And they had complicated ways of, this group memorizes that, this group memorizes that text, right? So they'd all pool their knowledge, and that way you keep all the texts memorized. But it was an institution, in other words, right? So since Mahayana ideas were new, they were different than the old ones that had been passed down, people were, you know, busy enough memorizing the stuff that had been passed down for hundreds of years. They just literally wouldn't have had the resources over the time to start now memorizing more stuff that kind of says different things, right? So writing allowed the people who came up with the early Mahayana ideas, even presumably it was a small group, right, to write them down, those ideas, and transmit them that way. Because otherwise, you know, to convince other monks who are already busy enough with the 16,000 pages of the existing Tipitaka to start now memorizing, you know, the 100,000 verse Prajnaparamita would have been quite a task, right? So um, that's what Richard Gombrich argues. And it may or may not be right, but for sure, writing has played a major part. And of course, in, you know, the, some of the earliest Mahayana texts, uh, you know, the ones, uh, the Prajnaparamita, the Perfection of Wisdom texts, we see things like this very commonly, right? If someone were to learn the, this perfection of wisdom, recite and study it, and wisely attend to it, would reveal it to others, and would honor, revere, and worship with flowers, etc., a written copy of it, uh, then he would on that account beget merit. And one sees this kind of thing uh, in many places in the various uh, early Mahayana texts, right? So that's uh, obvious that already from the very earliest stages, remember again, this, the core cano canonical text of Theravada Buddhism doesn't say anything about writing one way or the other, right? Because it wasn't around. But these texts, you know, the earliest core Mahayana texts already are saying, you know, copy this out, worship it, and you will get great merit, right? Um, also, the uh, apotheosis of wisdom, the great goddess Prajnaparamita, is always depicted with a holding a sutra in her upper left hand, right? So, I mean, the very iconography is also associated with written books, right? And again, that would, you know, this is a, quite a revolution, right? In a, uh, because like Theravada, or, like the early, early forms of Buddhism that later became Theravada, um, Mahayana arose in India, Right, which you know the Brahmanical tradition was always never too excited about writing. So for a group to say you know hold literally hold up the book uh, as being important is uh, quite a change. So we can see that in the Prajnaparamita um, literature and iconography, writing was certainly uh, valued. And there's also physical evidence of the worship of books in Mahayana circles from the earliest periods. Um, scholars have found deposits of sandalwood paste and vermilion and saffron on, um, on painted manuscript covers, for example. 
Um, and in addition, there's many examples of Taranis, right, short Mahayana texts similar to like a mantra that are written out. And um, uh, these are found in uh, northeastern India, in the Pala region where Mahayana was very popular in the 6th, 7th, 8th century. Um, and they're on clay tablets interred within stupas, right? So clearly intended to be venerated. Furthermore, we also have travel accounts, right? Chinese travelers in particular uh, that agree with the picture that emerges from the literary and the archaeological record. So the 7th century pilgrims, Xuanzang uh, and Yijing, both noticed that small stupas were often made in India into which short passages from Buddhist texts were placed. So <clears throat> these kinds of practices were definitely around. And of course, um, the material remains also speak volumes, right? So, you know, they say pictures is that worth a thousand words. So this is a typical Mahayana, early Mahayana Sutra. I mean, it's early in the sense that amongst the earliest we have, although it's still later than the earliest ones, you can see it's 10th century, but nevertheless, uh, if you look at it, there's beautiful illumination, right, on it. The letters are beautifully structured, the lines are very straight, right? It's a very beautiful work of art. You know, and of course, in China, you've got beautiful versions of the Lotus Sutra written with gold ink and that kind of thing. Uh, even there's a Uyghur Mahayana text that I found. I can't vouch for exactly what this is. I found it on the internet, but it just illustrated. Look at how beautifully the letters are written. Right, this beautiful painting on it. So that's Mahayana text, right? And that you know, without knowing anything, if you see an object like this, you reckon that the people who made it believe that writing and books and the written word is important. Now here's a typical Pali manuscript, right? Um, so here are the leaves, and this, the writing on here. Um, definitely not as venerable as the Mahayana ones, right? So you can tell that there is clearly some sort of um, view in Mahayana in which writing is elevated above the standard uh, Theravada views of it. Now, um, okay, so I think that I, I hope that I've established that, that writing is viewed as important in Mahayana Buddhism. Now, the interesting thing is that artifacts, if we look at Sri Lanka, so I mentioned this golden Abhidhamma that was made in the 10th century. Well, in fact, even still today, there are some extant articles similar to the Abhidhamma, right, the Pali Abhidhamma that was written according to the Mahabharata that still exist. There's some gold plates from Sri Lanka, 10th century once again, that actually do have texts inscribed on them, but those texts are Mahayana texts from, from Sri Lanka. So for example, the 25,000 verse um, Prajnaparamita is commonly found on the gold plates in, from the Jetavana monastery in Sri Lanka. I guess you, you could. You mean nowadays do we do rabbins or were they originally intended to be done with rabbins? I don't think so because I don't. What, what what would you have rubbed it with? Because they only had metal or palm leaves. They didn't really have paper, right? So I think rabbins only work if you've got like a thin paper-like object to rub on it. Uh, so I just thought that the second, but I think probably it's, you couldn't do rubbing with leaves. Anyway. Um, so the point is they still exist, but they are Mahayana texts. And of course, the great, um, the great uh, archaeologist of Sri Lanka and uh, paleographer, Senarat Paranavitana, uh, has written an article about Mahayana Buddhism in Sri Lanka. It's one of the lamentable few uh, articles about the subject. But he, in fact, concurs that in the 9th and 10th centuries, Mahayanism was particularly strong at Anuradhapura, the great capital of Sri Lanka. And um, you know, he bases this assessment on literary evidence as well as examining paleographical remains and these kinds of things. So you know, it really is quite interesting that during the 10th century, we see that Mahayana was very powerful, uh, was very influential in uh, Sri Lanka. And it turns out that, remember I said that, again, that gold Theravada text that was written, uh, was written by King Kasapa. And it seems from other inscriptions that that king um, supported the Abhayagiri Vihara most. 
And uh, you know, there were a number of viharas and monasteries. There were a number of monastic compounds that had sort of different interpretations of Buddhism during this period, right? Um, and in fact, the Abayagiri monastery was well known to have um, been much more accepting of, sure enough, Mahayana ideas and texts than the other monasteries. And sure enough, that very king who made the most prominent example, this golden one, in the Theravada tradition, also was interested in Mahayana ideas, it seems, from these inscriptions. So it all kind of works together in an interesting manner to suggest. Oh, and of course, um, yeah, it also, in the Mahabamsa, it says that at the Abayagiri Monastery, they uh, brought in a text, I believe from India, that's called the Dharmadhatu. It's unclear exactly what text that is, but it's some Mahayana text. Okay, and these Abayagiri monks brought it, and they venerated it. So this is one of the few, it's, that's the first reference in the Mahavamsa to veneration of text. That's like a couple hundred years before this golden one. So again, it's a Mahayana text, right? So maybe I've said a bunch of things. Let me just clarify. So in the Mahavamsa, the very first reference to veneration of a text is this Dharmadhatu text about 700, in the 7th century. And that's a Mahayana text that was venerated by monks at the Abayagiri Monastery. And then there's 300 years later is that gold Theravada text that uh, I, we talked about earlier. So, um, you know, it definitely looks like Mahayana Buddhism um, influenced this attitude towards writing in Sri Lanka. That is basically what I, the sense that I get. Now, of course, it could be a coincidence. Obviously, it could be, but I think that the evidence, it just all happens so close to when Mahayana Buddhism was well known in Sri Lanka, was kind of spreading, the ideas were there. We know already that writing was venerated there, that written texts were a fundamental way that Mahayana Buddhism spread and, and caught on, and that when it was thriving in Sri Lanka, then the Theravada Buddhists seem to have taken on a lot of those practices, and it kind of migrated into Theravada Buddhism. So that is my suggestion as to why we, uh, why we see, after a thousand years, suddenly writing seems to take on a more central place in the Buddhism of Sri Lanka. And, um, and the last thing that I'll say is that um, if you look, so Burma was also very influenced by Mahayana Buddhism. So again, similar to uh, Sri Lanka around the 11th century, it was the great capital of Pagan in Burma, and there was Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism there, kind of vying for uh, power, and then one of the kings finally decided on Theravada Buddhism, and Mahayana Buddhism slowly died out in Burma as well. But also in Burma, you can see that there is um, a fairly high degree of reference and respect for the written word. But if you look at northern Thailand, which is one of the Southeast Asian regions in which Mahayana didn't have any influence, okay? So for, in other words, in northern Thailand, there had not been finds of um, bodhisattvas, for example. So in Sri Lanka, again, around the ninth century, uh, there's many finds of icons of various bodhisattvas, Avalokitesvara, Manjushri, etc., um, again, suggesting Mahayana influence there. But in northern Thailand, you don't find any of that stuff, okay? Also, in northern Thailand, you find that pure Pali words work their way into the regular language of the people more than Sanskrit words. So, for example, um, in southern Thailand, that was influenced by Mahayana at various points, the Thai people use like a pronunciation more like nirvana to refer to nirvana, but in northern Thailand they still have nibbana, right? So you know, obviously that shows that there really wasn't much Sanskritic or Mahayana influence there. There's no iconography, there's no linguistic keys that might suggest that. And sure enough, um, in northern Thailand, from my studies, and we don't have too much time to get into it, but I will just summarize that basically. Uh, the written word seems to be uh, a lot less venerated than in Sri Lanka. For example, I said there were 130 libraries mentioned in the Mahabamsa in the equivalents of northern Thailand, the Chronicle. 
there's five mentioned. And probably the most, it's kind of hard to believe, but the most interesting thing is that in the chronicle of northern Thailand, uh, in 1477, there was a great council held by uh, a northern Thai king, right? The region is called Lanna, uh, that's what they call northern Thailand. And, uh, you know, it had a great period of uh, Buddhist efflorescence in the 15th and 16th centuries. And during that period, a great king called the Council of All the Monks, and they all got together and they redacted the uh, can, right? So it was kind of a separate redaction from the rest of the Buddhist world, their own little version of it. And they, you know, corrected mistakes, and then they wrote it all down. Okay, that's great. So that shows veneration for writing. So they gathered, they sat for several months, and they wrote it all down, and they put it in uh, in a, uh, a library attached to one of the royal monasteries. Well, 50 years later, the library was so badly maintained that the whole thing just collapsed, right? Like, you know, so I mean, think about that. But here they have this big council, and they come up with this new, um, you know, version of the text, and they write them all down, they put them in a library, and then nothing happens to it. They don't take care of it. It just, it actually collapsed. And they admit that freely in the Chronicle. I don't know if, you know, if that's saying, well, we should have paid more attention to it, but we didn't. Or the Chronicle also just, you know, he laments that it collapsed, but I don't know why. But surely that, you know, you would think that such a big project that they would spend a lot of money making sure that the library, uh, you know, is, is, re is, is taken care of, is painted, is prevented from rotting because it rains a lot there and all that, but they didn't and it just collapsed. So I think that you know there might be some relation between the lack of Bayana influence there and the lack of the kind of respect you see for writing in other parts. So in sum I just want to say that I think in Buddhist studies, you know, we often look at Theravada Buddhism and then Mahayana Buddhism and never the twain shall meet. But I think that there's a lot of places in which there was there was a lot of intercourse between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhists, and uh, lots of ideas changing, and there's been a number of studies along these lines, like uh, Francois Bizot is well known in Cambodia, looking at Mahayana aspects of the Theravada Buddhism that's practiced there, and it's just a very interesting um, line of research to look into how much influence was there between the two. So uh, that's about all I have to say for now. And I'm happy to take any questions. That's